What's up, Gumbo listeners? Demetrius here with episode number 115. And I have Ivan Pitaluga, CTO at ArcServe on. Ivan is an industry veteran and has a proven track record of leading advances in service delivery and transformational technology in the high-tech space. And as CTO, he oversees the strategy and development of ArcServe's globally recognized portfolios of backup, disaster recovery, continuous availability, migration, and archiving solutions. Now, in this episode, Ivan provides his view and details on file system theory, why you should understand the metadata of very large file systems, especially network accessible file systems, and a few nuggets of using tape and immutable storage. Let's get right into the episode. Ivan, how are you today? I'm doing very well today. Thank you for asking. All right. I am glad you're doing well, Ivan, and and I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the gumbo and also to provide our listeners just with some insight. Number one around, I guess, what, you know, ArcServe is working on right now. And also uh, maybe if you could start with just giving us a little bit about your background, that would be fantastic. Okay. Well, good to be here. As I said, I listened to some of your podcasts and I liked them. (laughs) So, you know, that, that makes me feel better about being here. So, man, my background, I have been in file system and storage for 30 years, which is something I like to keep secret, you know, in LinkedIn when I keep looking for jobs because it makes (laughs) me look old. But but in data protection itself, I would say since uh, December of 94, when I made the switch from file systems to data protection, and, and it happened in Silicon Valley, and I was fortunate at the time to have some terrific mentors in the industry, some of the true pioneers. And, you know, not quite intentionally, but I've also been fortunate to have made a tour of very successful data protection companies from Legato to Convault to Veritas, Symantec, Veritas again, and now ArcServe. So, you know, and I did some storage as well. I was with Quantum for a while. So, man, I've been exposed to things having to do with keeping, storing, and protecting your data for almost three decades. Wow. So you, know. you, you totally have me beat there, Ivan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know what you know, remember what they say about old buildings, right? That they start look looking better after they get old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't heard that one. I heard the one about the uh the the, the wine and you know, you a- aging, yeah, aging like wine, you yeah, get better, yeah, right? Correct. Yeah, no, it's exactly. all right. So I appreciate you sharing sharing your background there. Let's let's talk a little bit about security since it's it's a hot topic right now, and even the president yeah. of the United States is is uh, also it's it's at the top of his docket. The Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack that happened a while ago, a few other high profile uh, ransomware type events has really really catapulted ransomware and cybersecurity to the forefront. So my question for you, Ivan, is, you know, how do security risk, let's say, you know, ransomware type events, uh, how do they change how customers should be thinking about disaster recovery from your perspective? Yeah, you know, I thought of several ways of describing this, right? And and the best way I have of explaining it is 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 that ransomware is that a type of attack 
which is denial of access to your services, not to be confused with one of the typical denial of service attack. This means that the, the perpetrators are trying to take away from you the ability to access your most valuable assets, your most precious assets, and to do with that kidnapping the most nefarious things that they can possibly do, right? It, in military comparisons, you can compare it to the destruction of the American fleet at Pearl Harbor or the destruction of the, of the uh, Italian fleet at Toronto, right? The, the idea was to neutralize the assets of that adversary so that little could be done in response to their attack. And that's where I want people to focus because these attacks are moving, they're evolving. They, they are moving away from, from monetary extortion to doing as much harm as possible to your ability to compete, uh, your ability to be a valuable third party, your ability to uh, prosecute business, right? They're disabling attacks and, uh, uh, and they're taking all kinds of political considerations and others of which we can talk later. But that's really uh, what I think is, is, is emblematic of ransomware today. It, it, it's almost a weapon of mass destruction, right? Not quite, but it's definitely designed to take away from you, whether it's infrastructure, data applications, your most valuable assets. Yeah, and I guess, I guess it depends on, you know, what, what industry you're in too, if it's healthcare or financial services. And I have heard a few cases where, uh, you know, ambulances were, you know, rerouted. They were taking someone to the hospital and something happened from a, from a ransomware event that caused the ambulance to be diverted, you know, somewhere else. So it, it is definitely yeah. life or death. Oh, yeah. And what, what I would really like to find out from you is, you know, do you see any differences between just overall cybersecurity and, you know, what we call disaster recovery in the backup and recovery world? Like, what, what are the differences there, or are there any? The, oh, no, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, yes, there is. And the fundamental difference, to fall back on the metaphors I was using earlier, that cybersecurity is sort of your first line of defense in the case of an attack, or your first few multiple lines of defense, right? Mm -hmm. These are infrastructures, architectures, modus of operation that you put into place to try to make your valuable assets as, as inaccessible as possible, as protected as possible. Think of it as defense and death, right? Then when it comes to disaster recovery is after an attack has taken place. It's your method of, of either recovering from, from the situation or counterattacking to try to recover either the data itself or the usability to the assets that have been taken away from you, right? You think of it, I think of it as the triad of protection, having multiple pegs, three pegs. One peg is cybersecurity, lines of defense, infrastructure network, access to network, third-party components in your infrastructure, the way software, not only your software, but also the software of third parties is written and architected, 
right? Methodology of access to your data, who is in your circle of trust or perimeter of defense, so to speak. And then finally, you know, the other, that was the second, uh, the second part of the triad is modus of operation, right? And the third one is your data protection and data recovery methods. So that after you have been attacked, you can try to get back on your feet. You can, in fact, get back on your feet, do something about it, and counterattack, right? So that's, that's to me, is the key, the key differences, right? All right. Yeah, uh, Ivan, that, that's definitely some great in- insight from you. And, you know, I also want to get your recommendations around, you know, a little more, you know, security things around, let's say, multi-factor authentication. And there's, there's, this, there's a lot of talk around zero trust and also this term immutability you know, that, that people are throwing around. What, what are your recommendations, you know, around those specific things? And, and what do you think is important that, uh, let's say, a gumbo listener should, should, uh, should take into consideration? Yeah, I think that all your listeners uh, have to make the psychological journey of understanding that these things will be part of our everyday life, right? That, uh, like I have, it, it hasn't been easy for me either. And it's a conversation, right, that I have with my in-laws and with my brother-in-law. Uh, a multi-factor authentication is, is, it is an extra step. And it's an uncomfortable step, but is one of the easier ways to guarantee that the source with which you are uh, executing a transaction is in one place and it's legitimate and it has access what they're supposed to have access to. You know, I... I, uh, in fact, uh, uh, we're not alone. Uh, our competition and other data protection applications have moved to multi-factor authentication, right? I, I think that it's essential now. Uh, the other two are becoming that way. I'm going to start with immutability, right? And immutability is declaring uh, stored assets in, in spinning storage or in object storage in the cloud as well to be untouchable, to be unmodifiable. So if you have finished a write, a modification operation of an object or a file, once you're, com- you're completely doing this, the file system itself or the storage underneath it, the intelligence of the object storage on the cloud will deem that object to be untouchable. No one will be able to modify it change its change its metadata, change its privileges, do anything with it. Right? Yeah, so so that's another way of guaranteeing that if someone's gonna come by and do rights and do damage to either the file on a spinning disk or storage and object storage, that they won't be able to touch it because it has been declared and flagged as untouchable. Right? Finally, uh um zero trust architecture is as the name defines a set of rules and definitions that will change a lot of what we do. I advise Gumbo listeners before they commit themselves to a technology, before they start shopping for technologies to go read some papers and the government itself has good papers on zero trust architectures. Go read what they are, learn what the architecture is, and then you'll be able to surmise whether the implementation of the vendor it's following the true rules of zero trust architecture. And what is it? Well, what it is is in the old days, 
right? And my old mentors used to remind me constantly back in Palo Alto that a lot of these technologies were built by old hippies, right? So there was a circle of trust, right? There was this perimeter in military terms of trust. And everybody inside of the perimeter was a good guy by definition. And they had access to the things that you wanted them to and the assets that you wanted them to. Well, zero trust implies that that goes away. And instead, every time you want to access a piece of information, you'll go through a circle of checks. You'll go through a security area at the airport. And like the security area, there, there will be many consider considerations uh, that we'll be taking in addition to are your certificates in order? Are you know, what is the time of the day? Where are you coming from? Where is your access point? What is your final destination? So it's a series of intelligence, intelligent criteria that be operated on the user every time that any data is to be accessed. It's to be an instantaneous decision. My, fain, my final important point about this is that like every architecture is not infallible. It doesn't close and guarantee that the window of protection is closed, right? It just diminishes the Snowden case, for example. It diminishes problems inside your circle of trust. Uh, there are mitigations that you can do. There are countermeasures you can take. And there are weaknesses. And all of this is defined in white papers and government papers about what zero trust architecture is. Mm. So so go, go, okay. go get yourself some knowledge, right? That's why I tell the listeners, go, go read yeah. up on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that stood out was making your data untouchable. I think we have a podcast episode title here, Ivan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> making your data untouchable. <laughs> right. No, I mean, and that's really what it's about. It's protecting your most valuable assets, right? Awesome. Awesome. And, and I am going to shift gears a little bit here. Uh, just, just away from security and, and maybe more on to, you mentioned object storage. And so just around storage in, in general, and there's there's not a lot of conversation right now around storage other than the fact that storage is growing at a tremendous rate, which it's not a no-brainer, right? Everyone knows that, you know, we have all of these devices and, you know, we're, we're all doing things on our cell phones and, you know, IoT, et cetera. So data, obviously, it's growing. More around unstructured data. So unstructured data you know, those things that are sitting outside of a database. Um, what, what's the best way to deal with unstructured data from your perspective? Well, once again, it has two steps. And, and the first step is to understand what lake you're swimming in, right? Let's let's borrow the, the Microsoft term of, of data lake. Let's assume that a whole bunch of, uh, of unstructured data is a data lake. This water resides on top of a file system, right? All of these things are file systems. And these file systems, a lot of them, when they were designed, they were designed to make your life easier. They were designed so that you could traverse directories with ease, so that you could find, you could read a file relatively quickly. And if you can, that your course could find it, that you could ascertain the properties on the file, that you could modify the properties of the file, right? Uh, not all of these file systems were designed with the idea of you sharing data at high speeds and great speeds, and more importantly for data protection, of moving your data at high speed or traversing 
nested directories in the thousands, right? And moving hundreds of millions of files. That is what's happened to file systems. So, so now the protectors, my business, has to contend with the protection of these uh, uh, infrastructures of code that were not necessarily tailored to extract data as quickly as possible. So what I recommend to your listeners is to make sure that your data protection service, it's capable of speaking with knowledge about what it takes to traverse, what it takes to extract, and what it takes to be able to understand the metadata of very large file systems, particularly network accessible file systems. Because this is different expertise. This goes beyond the you query an application, you ask it where the data is, and then you start extracting it. This is very different. And moreover, a lot of the databases of the future will feel like file systems. There will be sharded databases that will be distributed in many different forms of storage. So you can think as a storage node for a database shard as a folder. And you will come to a central place and you'll ask, where are all the shards? Where are all the computer nodes that have a portion of my database? Which one do I want to go to? And you go extract it with prior knowledge. So all these things require file system understanding, file system knowledge, and of course, the ability to copy and write data at high speeds. So make sure that, like us, I'm sorry, a little bit of a commercial here, that the people that give you data protection are also fully fluent in the language of file systems, their architectures, their properties, and the ability to get data of them uh, as quickly as possible. So because unstructured data is going to drown us all, man. It's just so much of it. And as you had said so well, uh, 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 different than protecting databases. And, and in fact, uh, for, uh, I'm not, I hope I'm not going too long, but I'll give you a cloud example, right? No, you're, you're extracting unstructured data. You want to place it in an object in the cloud for storage. You also have to be smart as to how much data you cram in an object, because all those objects are about determined size, right? So you have to do it in a way so that when you retrieve it, you don't retrieve a lot more than you need, or you don't retrieve, or, or, right? And more importantly, you have to put it into an object in a way that gives you the most optimal uh, path of, of rights and puts in the cloud, right? So, so you have to be smart about how you're doing all of this. And you know what? A lot of this is file system theory, not just uh, backup and restore hmm. knowledge. Yeah, I, I didn't think about it from a file system perspective. And to me, you know, I, I had to think a lot about that back when I was, you know, starting out 20 years ago because file systems was was all we knew, right? And now that we're moving into the cloud and, you know, everyone's moving workloads into the cloud, lifting and shifting and migrating into the cloud. And now SaaS applications are, are a thing. So you, you tend to think or forget about file systems and some of the more, you know, I, I think when I think of a file system, I think of more of an, an on-premises type of discussion. But what about now with, with these SaaS applications that, you know, are popping up on the scene and customers are, are sometimes wrestling with hundreds of SaaS applications just to run their business. Um, do you have any recommendations around protecting that data in a SaaS platform? Wow, 
Well, that, that has multiple considerations, okay? It, it's a loaded question, I know. It, it, it has multiple considerations because, once again, you're talking about competing. Mm-hmm. See, there's one thing we got to remember, which is back in computer science days when we talked about the number of available chairs at a barber shop, okay. right? And available. Once again, you're talking about applications who are going to be competing for resources, the resources in the sense of doing IO to the cloud. Of, 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 and yes, I understand the cloud's elastic. Yes, the cloud has many capabilities, so you can write to many different things all at once, but nothing's infinite, man. The, the SaaS applications still have to be smart about how they extract data and how they store the data and the methods that they use. And in the end, the data that you're pulling in, unfortunately and frankly, it's mostly either documents or pictures of music. So so it's unstructured by definition, right? And so so even they are going to have to be very well aware of these things that I already talked to you about. Because when I was thinking about backup applications, I was thinking about backup applications as a service. That's, that's something that we have to be very adept at doing. So what applies to us will apply to all those applications too. And there's one more interesting tidbit here to talk about the security aspect. The more, the more code you have operating, uh, whether it's in a monolithic application, whether it's in distributed applications functioning as services, whether it is as containers or microservices, whatever, the more code you have running doing tasks for you, the more chances are that there will be vulnerabilities in that code and the more places where you have to go manage those vulnerabilities, right? All right. So, Ivan, I think you're spot on with, with your answer there. And it also made, made me think about, you know, just modernizing a data protection strategy. And so you, 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 you mentioned some history about, you know, file systems and also you mentioned object storage. And um, I'm, I'm not sure if you mentioned tape. But I don't know if we even want to have a conversation about tape, but it's it's still a good use case, yeah. you know, just from a security perspective, right? It, it's a yeah, it's a well known secret inside the guys of the big houses, and I'm not going to use their name, but but you see them advertise in sporting events, and they give you stats about you know. Uh, velocity of balls being hit out of ballparks and you know those people they're the biggest users of tape in the world because you know even cloud infrastructure vendors are the biggest usage of tape because two reasons number one you can't beat the cost you can't beat the price still of storing data on this on tape they are getting faster and faster yes there are still engineers in this planet, particularly in Japan, that write that write new code, improving speeds and new protocols as to how to write to tape and how to make them smart. They are somewhat long-lived. You know, uh, I I have tapes that are thirty years old, right? That can be read, uh, and more importantly, they are the very definition of immutable storage itself, right? You, you can grab a tape, you take it out of the, la- the rack on the library, right? Or you mark it as unwritable and no one will be able to touch that tape again, if, especially if you vault it, right? So, 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 yeah, there are a lot of, of course, the problem with tape is, is that, you know, you must have a business that justifies its expense. 
sophisticated enterprise libraries are very expensive. That's one thing that hasn't come down in all the years of uh, stuff that I have. You still need tape operators and people that move stuff through tape correctly. And frankly, the enterprise and, and big SMB houses that make software for tape are not the most inexpensive data services and data protection stuff out there. But, you know, it's because they're selling you something of value, the ability to move data to tape, you know. But uh, when I, I worked in one of the very first object storages, you know, that went to the market, and I can tell you that our target for performance and right into object storage was was not as fast as disk or or flash storage, but certainly faster than tape. And by the time we finished our object storage, tape was catching up already. So, right. So don't forget about tape, man. Tape, tape yeah. has a place. Tape yeah, has a place. absolutely. And I, I immediately think about, you know, air gap and, you know, just having a, a separate location that you have that tape. Um, it's not connected to the network and it is completely offline sitting somewhere just waiting, you know, for that catastrophe or that disaster to happen. It also makes me think about, you know, where are we headed in the future? Because uh, I think right now we're at LTO 8 or 9. And I, I have no idea because when I was a backup administrator, it was LTO 3 and LTO 4, if I am not mistaken. And, you know, I worked for EMC for a while and, you know, we had the whole campaign, Tape is Dead. I'm not sure if you remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the the virtual tape libraries with deduplication was this hot thing with data domain and everyone just went crazy. It was like a concert, right? Yeah. That's right. I'm thinking toward the future, and I would like to get your thoughts on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Are, are you you utilizing any of those um, capabilities right now, or, or are you thinking about those? And if so, of course we are. We have to. I, I mean, and it goes beyond the cachet. It goes beyond the cool marketing tagline. There are some things that we can do which A, will make your life as an administrator easier, and B, will make you more secure. And, and they all have to do with artificial intelligence. In mm -hmm. fact, the most exciting developments that I've seen in the area of data movement uh, for data protection, and I don't want to tell you more than this because it's a feature. Yeah, it's a yeah. feature that we're considering, right, for which we have prototypes, but we haven't convinced our product marketing that it's worth having in the product yet. Mm. But one of them is deciding when to write. When deciding, you don't make the decision as to when to do the backup is, you know, the computer does. You know, based on a multitude of factors, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and the other one is in the area of security. Uh, I think, and I had to take my hat off to Microsoft, who have been tagged in the past as not being very secure. But they're making immense progress in the area of intelligence for security analysis. Because the, the way you handle security in the infrastructure today is that you have a team of people. In fact, I owned one before in the past at Veritas. You know, very smart guys. And there's a security czar, so to speak. And their job is to go through an incredible amount thousands of thousands of thousands of warnings in your infrastructure being produced by network management systems, storage management systems, software, data protection software. Uh, and you look through all those warnings and you decide based on your knowledge 
and your experience in the industry, you know what? This is a warning we have to act on. Or no, this is not a warning we have to act on, right? So the future of that area is, once again, operating systems that can make that decision for you. And of course, once again, right, they, nothing is perfect. You know, the computer in 2001 Space Odyssey wasn't perfect. But the point is that you won't have to go through tens of thousands of warnings and messages. You'll go through a much smaller list and you know that the stuff you're looking at, you're going to have to act upon. You won't be able to just make decisions on it because it's gone through a machine learning process of decision to share with you, okay, this is it, man. These are the red things I see happening in your ecosystem. I like that. And it, it reminded me of a thought that I had around self-protecting systems. So a system would actually know when to back itself up. Yeah. Like, how cool would that be? But I know. I know. I know. I don't, and, I don't and, know if it would... It would if it would put us out of a job or not, but yeah, yeah, it sounds I, cool. Yeah, now I feel bad that I said it because some other people are going to hear it. But, you know, anyhow, <laughs> I like it, and I think it's a cool thing, and, and, and I'm chasing it. So, so competitors right. beware. Ivan's chasing that technology. <laughs> well, all right. I guess all, all you DevOps engineers out there, I, Ivan may need to reach out to you so he can get some more, um, you know, details to, to their product management team. All right, so uh, Ivan, one more question, a final question, and let's make it a fun one here. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's see. So we have backup administrators out there, storage administrators, all different types of individuals protecting data, uh, whether it's in the cloud or on premises. And the job market is hot. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? I oh yeah, it's hot. So oh, yeah. I can't hire. No what people. advice? Yeah. What what advice would you give to someone that's looking? Let's say they've been stuck in their career for you know, five, six years now, and market's hot, you know, what advice would you give to them right now around, um, you know, maybe leaving, going to something new, something different? Yeah. What advice would you give? Well, what I would tell my colleagues uh, looking and my colleagues is that, number one, do your homework. It's hard to tell where the innovation is happening. The innovation is not always happening at the big places. Right. Uh, uh, Oh, I'm going to go work for this four letter company because or five letter company, because I'm sure that they're going to be doing the latest and the bestest companies of that size have already legacy obligations to very, very big customers who will demand features, will demand changes in the product lines, which will, in other words, restrict their ability to innovate. So innovation happens at all levels, at all sizes. Don't, don't restrict yourself to the big ones. When you come to talk to us in the industry, don't just sit there and tell me that you have 20 years in data protection and backups and, and, and you worked in this library and that library. Tell me what makes you special. I hate to say this, man, but tell me what you've learned out of all that experience. What makes you, the dollar is on the things that make you unique, that demonstrate that you had initiative, that you could learn, right? That you have the desire, and if you have views on the future, if you have visions of what you think the industry ought to do, don't be shy, share them as well. If it matches with what we wanna do, you're in, (laughs) right? You know. But, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. The market is very hot, but do your homework. Don't just let somebody else do your homework for you. In the case of a recruiter, don't just, uh, you know, tailor a resume and just attack two places. Take a look at all the companies out there. 
you know, take a look at what they've written about innovation. Uh, if that is your gig, if you want to innovate and do new things, because who doesn't? That's the exciting part of this whole thing. Right. Right. And, and, and number three, come ready to tell me what makes you different. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I know that's very like common it. HR advice, man. But, you know, we as engineers uh, develop, uh, I had to le learn this a long time ago, but we sort of have this attitude that let the work speak for us. Let yeah, the accomplishment right. speak for us. No, 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 sir. You speak mm -hmm. for yourself. So absolutely, that's that's what I have. To, okay, that's my advice. And happy that, hunting. That, <laughs> that is great, great advice. And I am sure the Gumbo listeners will appreciate that advice. Um, also, I guess one final thing: yeah. Is there any? You have a social media handle you would like to yeah, share? Yeah, you know, I do have other things, but you know, I have lost interest in a few of them. So, mm -hmm. so LinkedIn is the best. Well, awesome! I, I truly appreciate the time that you've taken today, Ivan. Thanks for coming on Data Protection Gumbo. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.